0: Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy O, a a VC, founder, and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Karen. Good to have you on the show. Hello,
1: Jeremy. Good to see you again.
0: It's always good to see you. I think we've always had such wonderful, deep, and thoughtful conversations all the time. I think it would just be nice just to chat about some of the things we've learned along the way, right? As, I guess, operators and executives at one level, but also as uh, human beings as another. So I thought that would be fun.
1: Yeah, looking forward to it.
0: So Karen, for those who don't know you yet, could you share about who you are professionally?
1: So my most recent roles were held concurrently with the Singapore Prime Minister's Office and the Economic Development Board. I've actually been in the Prime Minister's Office role for four and a half years now, starting when I came out to the Bay Area and I was the first one to be hired out here for the Smart Nation office. I was looking at partnerships and talent and various other initiatives, but really pivoted very strongly towards the talent piece because more and more you see governments and big organizations needing to insource some of these tech work. They don't just program, project manage it out anymore because tech is changing so fast. And so what you need is really good people who understand your business, but also understand the technology. You don't really want to buy solutions and partner like that in such a big, massive waterfall way anymore. So I've really been working on that global talent attraction for the Smart Nation Initiative for the Prime Minister's office. And then two years ago, I started the EDB role. For those of you who know EDB, our overall objective is to bring investment to Singapore. So get the, the world's best companies to incorporate in Singapore, set up the incentives for that but we never really worked so coherently on the talent front, institutions and individuals, I think. And I, I started to build out this individual strategy with the Singapore Global Network. I was one of the founding members there as well. And I built out the US operations and the UK operations, and as well as overseeing the Singapore team. And I focused on tech talent specifically. So those two roles kind of interact. Uh, and that's why they asked me to do it concurrently. Yeah. Before that, I was in Singapore and I was working in many various different roles. You know, I was in the premises Minister's Office Strategy Group, I was in the Ministry of Education, working on preschool policy, higher education policy, set up the strategic comms and engagement team for MOE. Back then, corporate comms was very much like, let's do all the policy and then let's tell people what it is. But really, we wanted to engage the stakeholders a lot earlier in policy making and bring that process upstream. So I was one of the founding team members for that. And then one of my most memorable experiences was actually in my first job I was at the Ministry of Finance, working on social policy reforms. So looking at making the, you know, how do you make the preschool sector more equitable, not just completely private sector driven? We still have that, but how do you really ensure that when people enter P1, they're not just completely miles apart in their foundations? Because preschool education is a huge part, huge bearing on your future. So we looked at that, at you know, making healthcare more equitable, retirement adequacy more equitable. And that was, I guess, formative for me in realizing like I have a huge passion for equity in organizations and society and and things like that.
0: So it's interesting because I I see And I've known you for so many years now. You have two loves. You have this passion for equity. And you also have this love for individual human beings, right? Mm -hmm. It's been such a joy every time to chat with you about it. We always go to have these deep conversations. And I knew you all the way back in junior college as well. And obviously, we didn't know each other that well. So I'm just kind of curious, where where did these two loves, these two passions begin? Because they're a little bit different, right? One is equity and one's for humans. So let's start the equity side first. And after that, we we'll talk about the humans, yeah?
1: Yeah. You know me from junior college. So I was a swimmer back then and swimming took up 15, 25 hours of a week. And I remember just doing that all the time. But finally, I kind of got a break in junior college because I started winding down by then and I started doing a lot more of volunteering, whether it was working with special needs children or children with special needs, sorry, um, or going on volunteer trips and starting to expose myself to a wider spectrum. By the time I was kind of disillusioned with this whole achievement mentality because I was in elite sports, right? And and I went all these things, but for what, right? Like what good do I add to society? So I really went into it thinking about these questions. I started to wonder, how is it that as a society back then, I didn't think we seem to inherently value people even if they couldn't contribute economically. So this was related specifically to the children with special needs or juvenile delinquents, for example. It's more about mitigation and making sure that they don't become a burden to society rather than saying, okay, well, it's a different paradigm from saying these people are inherently valuable and what does it mean to have a society that reflects that? That's a tough question for Singapore because... Small countries, scarce resources, every resource matters, capitalist society, right? Some of our principles, people argue we couldn't be so abundant towards these groups that couldn't maybe couldn't contribute as much back then. So I, I wonder, and I thought a lot about these questions. And, you know, I was in originally intending to apply for medical school, but I ended up applying for the government scholarship specifically because of this issue. And talking to, I used to volunteer at a school for children with Down syndrome, um, in the year after junior college, before college. And I would speak to all the parents and they were, they're all struggling. They're not trying to gain the system, um, but it's incredibly difficult. So much friction. Somebody has to stop work, single income household, if you're lucky. I thought, wow, that, that, there's so much that needs to change here in our paradigm. That's the equity. That's the origins of my interest in equity. And And, you know, when I became a lead, I also started to think about that question because sometimes it seems like the leader is more important and then people kind of uh, defer to you because it seems like your view is more important, but I never actually believed that. (laughs) And because I pushed into leadership quite young, I knew that other people would know better than me and the, the fact is they need to feel valued despite me being in charge. So how do you enable that? How do you really be a leader who makes sure that people feel valued so that they can bring their best and so that they can always tell you the truth? And that's always been at the back of my mind as I manage different teams along the way.
0: It's interesting because you have these two loves, right? I mean, I think you have this passion for equity that you talk about and it's really about the organizational level. And I've also seen you do a tremendous amount of interest because you went to get a coaching certification and you also coach people individually as well. Mm -hmm. And it's very individual Mm one-on-one. And so I'm just kind of wondering how would you contrast or how do they feed into each other? Because you work an organizational level. And I would say even all the way up to the national level, right? Which is a a plane higher than most people Mm -hmm. because you're working at the national level, societal level. You're working at the organizational level, which is like the ministries or the teams that you're part of and the teams you're coaching and leading. And then there's the individual level that you're working on. So how do they work with each other? How do they flow? And how do you switch or code switch between them?
1: I think that is maybe the question that I am grappling with right now. How do these two interests come together? I would say I just intensely enjoy the individual level work because I think that any deep transformation requires a safe space to reflect and to be vulnerable. And many of us, once you reach leadership positions, there's just no space like that. Especially in certain cultures, you have to be strong, you have to be sure. Even if you're insecure, you try not to show it, although it's obvious to everybody. Um, So where do you get space to to think about it and to grapple with the things you know you're not good at or that you know that you're struggling with? Most of us who manage somebody will end up in that situation where we, we struggle with certain types of people. Do you just use your power to shut that down or do you use that as a way to grow and to develop a new type of productive relationship? And the latter is so hard when you don't have support. And so like for me, When I see something that is not quite right, one of my team members or a manager under me or something is struggling, I'm always thinking, what is the safest way to provide feedback for this person so that they're most willing to change? And often that means providing a safe space for them to unload all the huge emotions, even if they might not admit it, that come with dealing with all these interpersonal conflicts. Yeah, that is a space that I see as incredibly effective and can turn situations around. It's just not incredibly scalable compared to, say, a policy change or an organizational change. You need the good organization and policy, but you can't rely on it. You can't say, I've done that, so we are good, right? You actually have to be able to be creating these spaces for your key people or, you know, hopefully everyone to be transforming in the way that you want them to and they want to.
0: Yeah, it totally makes sense. And that's the tricky part that all of us have as people who have been coaching or mentoring. is like that the transformation is really one-on-one and it's deep, but it doesn't feel scalable. And so we're often working at another plane where we're working at teams. And of course, you get to work at a plane that most people don't get to work at, right? Which is at a national level. Whereas, you know, working with the millions of people, right? And probably if you stack up, the fact that these policies will last for the next 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years is an order of magnitude larger than lots of individual contributors that teams would be, right? So I think we understand that, I guess, intellectually. And I've also noticed you personally doing all of it. Do you ever feel like it clashes or do you ever feel like that moments where it creates like, moments of great joy that because you're doing them together as well? I'm just kind of curious.
1: I think my, my question is always, how do I do this in a sustainable way for myself? I think because, you know, you've noticed my personality, if you give me a, a work situation, I'm always like, who are the people in this situation? What are their motivations and incentives? And how do I bring out the best in them? And that's my main operating question. And of course, how do I achieve the outcome by doing that? I think if you take 100 people, 99 of them, and if I could say like 99.8, 99 of them like all want to do a good job, but sometimes the environments are not conducive, whether there's a lack of trust and things like that. So if you assume that they want to do a good job, by enabling them to do a good job, you achieve your outcome. And that I see as explains a lot of what I've done in the last few years. You know, even when I came out here, I had nobody under me as a start. I started to work with people who were not reporting to me, but well, had, you know, slightly similar objectives, whether they're in a community or other government agencies. And I started to build a movement based on that. The first Singapore tech forum, for example, I was like me, I was half part-time then. And another guy part-time and we just launched this thing with Facebook in Menlo Park. I think we got 700 signups in a few weeks and it cost so little. And the answer was, okay, you know, where's everybody's incentive? And who is super excited about this? Let's go unlock all of that and let's do it. And let's share the credit generously. So I think that's generally my approach towards leading people. Your question was about moments of distress. The flip side of that for me is that I've had to learn what is my responsibility and what is not. Sometimes my, I err on the side of over-responsibility. If somebody's really unhappy. I always think like, okay, is there something I could have done better? And the answer is always yes. I could have done more. But then what was okay with it? What could I have done within the boundaries? And what is that person's responsibility? So that is more of the personal challenge for me. And I think anybody who errs on the side of this people-centeredness would have that challenge. I've seen that kind of archetype, not just me. So that's one of the downsides. But one of the upsides is that almost everybody I work with, you know, I have a sustained relationship with. A good one, because it's built on not just mutual interests, but we really did enjoy working together. We found a way that we got win-win, but we also did enjoy ourselves. And that's, you know, what I think is a bit of my superpower when it comes to work and something that is deeply meaningful for me personally.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I think it's both a superpower, but it also creates a shadow, right? The superpower being these deep moments of connection that are more than transactional and more than relational, but something more significant and meaningful. Yeah, in contrast, like you said, mm-hmm. the ability to center yourself and know the boundaries is a challenge for people. What people centered as an archetype. And I totally resonated with that because I also feel like that too. When I hang out with other people of the same archetype, it's something we always think about. How do you not necessarily physically burn out, but how do you prevent yourself from emotional or relational burnout, right? Yeah. How do you think about that?
1: I think a lot about the idea of stewardship, and how I'm actually stewarding many things. So work is one thing, but my own energy is one thing, and my family and all the other responsibilities I have are other things. And so I'm a very important part to steward as well because my energy is going to flow in and circulate around this ecosystem. And so I like to check my energy. Am I enjoying my work? Am I finding energy doing it? Am I starting to get really, really frustrated at this person in in an overblown way? And then I know something is wrong. I'm probably crossing that line, that boundary of personal responsibility and taking on too much of somebody else's. And that includes in, in the family with your kids and also at work projects, different teams. And and I need to be able to consciously then put it down. And I think having trusted people to be able to, to talk to about these situations, I've not always had those people. It's hard to find, especially as you go up in management it's hard to find people who can give you that objective view and you can actually share very openly with. How do you find those peers or like maybe plus one level ups who you can share with and they don't feel like they need to go intervene, but they can give you a view on whether you are like overstretching. And sometimes I've learned that I need to let someone else take care of it. So I'm the type of person who thinks, well, if you give me this responsibility, I want to shield you as much from this So, with a boss or something like that. I don't, you know, I'll take care of it. I'll shield you. But now I've realized, like, actually, I need to include them more. I need to include my bosses as part of the brainstorming, as part of the problem solving, and not try and be protect them from that as well.
0: I think you're talking about something which is quite true, right? Which is that we have a responsibility for ourselves. Where and I think the analogy goes on, like you know, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you put the oxygen mask on your child in the flight during the drill. Yeah, and I, I think I always thought to myself that was when I was listening to it. I was always thought it was a bonkers thing to say, right? Because you're like, isn't a child more important than you? Mm-hmm. And then I didn't realize until I was watching like a documentary where I didn't realize. Effectively, once the mask drops, you're pretty much gonna pass out within three seconds. Mm-hmm. You try to put the mask on the other person; is probably going to kill both kill both of you, right? Because you can't take care of you. You're blacking out yeah. on them, and then you yourself can't take care of yourself. And the human body can actually survive a few more the child or the other party can survive a few more seconds after you put on your own mask. And yeah. I, had to, I had to watch it visually in yeah. you know, order to understand it.
1: Yeah.
0: And one thing I think I hear about you about the emotional and the energy levels, like, you know, we have a responsibility to maintain our own energies. I don't think even think I understood that until my first time I burned out. Because I think I burned out. I was working two roles. One was I was consulting at Bain and I was running a social enterprise that was building on the side. Yeah, that was a lot for me. And I just burned out. I, in the end, just chose one, right? And I think it was the right call. But I think I could have done it better if I had been more… Obviously, I think I was aware of the literature about… You know, everybody warned me about burning a candle fans. But I didn't understand that emotionally or visually, right?
1: Sometimes you don't know no, like, it happens to you. Lah. I think that is, unfortunately, how we learn. <laughs> sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just have to <laughs> you're like
1: No, no, I'm invincible. I'm the exception. And then like, boom, you're not. And you realize like, okay… <laughs>
0: So you're saying the only way you understand how to maintain your energy is if you get close to burning out or you burn out. Is that Mm. one way we can think about it?
1: I don't know if I can say that's the only way. Well, that was the case for me as well, actually, Jeremy. Mm. I told my husband, it took two kids, two jobs and a pandemic for me to burn out. And he's like, "Well, well, thankfully you do this now and not like, It's a grace in some sense to reach the end of yourself and say, well, this philosophy of life is not working, so let me go re-examine myself. Because it wasn't the first time that somebody told me, you're working too hard. You have two kids under five, you're taking two jobs, you're on calls at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 11 p.m. And throughout the day, people told me that. They said... I was like, no, I'm fine. You know, it's fine. Look, I'm already lucky in these ways. You know, I, I do take breaks in the day. And, you know, I, I, I try to make a good positive thing out of it because that's my personality structure, character structure. But when I really burn out, then I realized like, oops, like this, you know, it was bad and I should have listened earlier, but I was just not that person to listen at that point. So do you empathize with that?
0: Oh yeah, I totally empathize with that because, you know, taking care of other people the tricky part about lying intentionally or not to other people, what you want to call it, right? Managing your reputation, trying to take care of them. There's lots of reasons why. But at the end of the day, there's a fundamentally desynchronization between what you're projecting versus who you are, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the problem when you do that externally is that you oftentimes start drinking your own Kool-Aid and you lie to yourself. In that moment as well. And it also feeds the other way around. We're not fully present with ourselves. And so, therefore, we, we feel comfortable and confident in saying that we can totally manage this thing.
1: I think we are, as Asians, we're also skilled in the art of emotional suppression. <laughs> so, I think we're like deliberately lying to ourselves. It's just like we're not even aware of what's happening, what's really happening. And as you said, there's so many layers to it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't, I didn't mean it from an intentional lying, but you yeah, know, it's just... I know like, you didn't, yeah. You know, like, sub, you're unconsciously lying to yourself. All basic it it suppression, right? And I think the wonderful and, crazy, and the crazy part of a human mind is we can think multiple things at the same time. We can say to ourselves, I'm exhausted. At the same time, as saying, I'm going to crush it. At the same time, is, I'm going to take care of someone else. And we can think three thoughts at the same time. Yeah. In the same one to two seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so all three things can be true to us at the same time.
1: You're right. There's a proverb that says like the purposes of a man are like deep waters, but a wise man draws them out. And I think about that when it comes to coaching, because you're right, like at the surface level, all these things can be true at the same time. I'm not saying that you were lying or I was lying or any of my clients were lying when they said that. I believe it is true. But what's really at the base? What is at the base there? I think that is the heart of a lot of the work, the deeper work of coaching. I don't even understand myself most of the time. And I think I'm a pretty self-aware person.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I think it's the truth. It is like you said, the truth of the moment and there's the deeper truth about who you are and why you are acting the way you are. And I find it tough to catch myself as well at the moment. Sometimes I'm just like, I get angry or frustrated about something. And then after that, I have to be like, sit down and I'm just like, wait, why am I frustrated? Like, you know, at a deeper level, right? You know? And it's tough to do that self work. I think that's I don't know, I don't even want to call it, but it's work definitely, right? To do it, yeah,
1: it's, it's big work
0: too.
1: So it's, I think it could take years.
0: <laughs> years. It's like I was just why am I angry at lunch? You know? It's like no, I think years to solve the problem. But I think you say something you is true, right? Which is about emotional suppression and the corollary or there's avoidance, right? I think that we see that a lot in the technology world, which we're both part of, which is every founder says, I'm here to change the world, make the world a better place. We're going to make this a unicorn. <laughs> and then there's also the awkward reality, which is like things are falling apart. We're hiring a lot of people. I can't find engineers. I'm not sleeping enough. It's not just the founders, it's also everybody has an ecosystem. The venture capitalists are walking around, book back to back to back for the whole day. The employees I was running around. And I always found that interesting because I feel like Silicon Valley, you know, obviously, you see know, Berkeley and the whole, like, there's this one thread of like, what we just talked about, right? Which was like, let's do the deep work. Let's take time out. You know, let's go to Bali. You know, not, not in a party way, but to spend time and reflect and meditate. And on the contrast side, there's this crazy, rah, rah, we're going to go to the moon. And that gap is so large versus I think in other places in the world, the gap is much tighter. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Do you feel the same or how do you feel different?
1: That's a really good question. I do notice that in my earlier years in the the Valley, I was, I sometimes rolled my eyes because I would go sit in a restaurant and the guy next to me would be like, oh, I just went on my yoga retreat. And then he'd be like, and I'm so freaking stressed now because, you know, I I remember sitting there being like, okay, yeah, that is the reality. People know, people do think a lot about meaning and impact and significance. And like living aligned to their values, and but there is the reality of the grind, which still looks at you as a you know a bit of a commodity. Like let me invest in one hundred of you, and hopefully one of you succeeds. What do you make of that tension yourself?
0: Ooh. <laughs> don't we all wish we all had answers? Um, I guess I think about it sometimes from a historical way, right? Which was you know like the Bay Area was a very countercultural place, and so it has that, you know, that deep root of being in touch with yourself and so, so forth. And I think there's another culture altogether. I wouldn't look at it as the same place. I would look at it as like two Venn diagrams, right? Which is the, you could say capitalism or you could say venture economics, you want know to call it, technology, upside, the future. And I think there's a Venn diagram that's there. It's very yin and yang, maybe, right? You know, <laughs> maybe yin and yang would be a better way of saying. I think that some people who do their best work are people who have that done the self-work on themselves and they're working in the place where they have values. And so they go on to do tremendous things as a result because they have that multi-levels of energy to pursue that. And then that lets them carve out the time and resources to do the self-work as well. For example, I was talking to someone recently and I was just, this was an interesting conversation and one thing I realized was like, you can't have a world-class executive coach because it's expensive. But a world-class executive coach can help you become world-class. And there's this awkward dynamic where that flywheel, that yin and yang works really well, once you get that flywheel going, that's not accessible to most people.
1: That's good food for that. I, you know, I haven't thought too much about that. Yeah. But maybe because they have to, tech talent has always been scarce, is that they treat people well. Mm. And I think there is this ethos of valuing the individual contributor. And partially because startups are, they thrive on that flatness, everybody contributing, they really have to value the the guy on the ground. The guy doing the user research, the guy testing the product—you never see them as anything less than you. You shouldn't. That's bad for your business. And I, I appreciate that about the Silicon Valley, coming from a more traditional Asian culture, Asian organization. You no, know, the Singapore Public Service does value people a lot, but it's ultimately a bureaucracy with some of the regular bureaucratic problems. And so, in my work, when I work on attracting the world's best tech talent to work on public problems. You run into this tension precisely. They are very accustomed to places where the individual contributor can iterate quickly and bring extreme value to the organization and and argue directly with the CEO. Whereas sometimes when you go into bureaucracy, like, what is happening up there? Why does it take so long for me to get my budget? Why does this person and that person, all these people have to comment on what I do? The answer is obvious. And so... That is the big cultural gulf that I think I live between right now. And I don't think that a government necessarily should aim to be like a Silicon Valley company, but there's so much to learn there about which parts of your organization you can release to some of these
0: new modes of working. There's a lot of truth there. And it's interesting because you've really been acting as that bridge and facilitator between, you could say, government and technology, Singapore and Silicon Valley slash the States. And I think a lot of people are in that role, right? Because they're very bridge roles. And it almost feels like people who do bridge roles tend to be, I don't know what you think, but I feel like they tend to be undervalued by both sides. Because in the tech world, they're looking at these people as like public policy. Your job is not to create value, your job is to preserve value by helping us regulate or lobby or interface with government. And then for government it's very much like, you know, again, you know, helping us to attract and so forth. But you know, it feels like it's a uh, undervalued role, I don't know, do you feel that or in what situations are they more valued?
1: So you're talking about, let's say, you know, Google public policy, they play more of an advocacy role, yeah. lobby governments to do a certain thing, right. take a certain policy position that's beneficial to the business. Right. And that definitely, say, trails the product side of the house, right? And the engineering side of the house. You're, you're talking about that, Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one way, yeah.
1: This is a really interesting thing about a country versus a a company. I think in a company, certainly like your engineering and products out of the house should be out there making new things. If not, there's nothing to talk about. Whereas in a country, especially in a time like COVID, you look at things like, okay, well, how do you position Singapore to weather COVID well? The combination of policies and technology and operations that are needed to do that, right? From contact tracing to swab testing to quarantining to what your quarantine policy should be to how do you reopen the economy? How do you keep hawkers afloat, right? I think very much the, the government plays that steering role. And it needs to define the space that technology can contribute to and make it as conducive for people, talented, super talented people to come in and help us solve it. So one thing I tried out last year actually was I launched a COVID volunteers effort for GovTech. Well, it was really crazy. 700, 800 people signed up. And I I just met a bunch of them in the Bay Area last week because we're opening up here. And they were like, oh, guess what? We're still working on the project now. And I was like, what? One year later? Uh, Well, certainly not everybody who wanted to was matched because that's inherently the problem with volunteers. But those who were matched were matched for a long time. And they told me that was probably the most meaningful thing I did during COVID. And so I always see my role as creating these new common spaces where tech and government can come together at the level of problems and skills. And that's something that for me isn't really a trailing thing. I do see new value for both sides. These people will go on to think about okay, have you solved this problem? Have you done that? Have you thought of this thing? And I think that is very much where government needs to evolve. And technology is actually very interested to solve because many, many talented people thinking, wow, I have these skills and my day job is not necessarily super, super meaningful. Reference our past conversation about the hype and then the reality. What can I do to benefit my fellow men? And I think that's an existential question for most people in our jobs. And obviously then like working on the talent space specifically, there's huge interest from the private sector as well because as a small country in Singapore, we attract talent back and that's why I took on an EDP role as well. You bring talent back, it's good for the whole system. They go to the government for a bit, they jump out, they go lead ops for a big tech company, they jump back in. We see that circulation happening a lot more. Recruiters in Singapore are hardly reaching out here. I did a study with LinkedIn and I think we we found that our Singaporeans out here get like three LinkedIn pings every week if you're a software engineer. But none of them are from Singaporeans because the Singaporean side doesn't know how to access this talent community at all. So... I think that's also a very meaningful
0: thing for Singapore.
1: How do you start that flywheel of talent going back, circulating back out and things
0: like that? I remember I got lute as a volunteer and I uh, remember during the pandemic, the uh, giant Singapore wiki on how to get out of X country and into Singapore. I think it was almost 100 pages, I think, of q I keep still getting pings from people who are like, hey, I read your document and I got back to Singapore safe and sound. I was like, okay. I think it was me and Karen just kind of like and then,
1: Yeah, thanks for doing that. So not necessarily just tech, right? I mean, I would love to see the government just a lot more open to, to talent and people who have like that civic mindedness.
0: Yeah. yeah and thank you for looping me in. I, I wouldn't have been looped in if you hadn't uh, asked. So this is an interesting dynamic here, right? Because we're talking about the difference between corporations and countries, right? I remember this thing about something which was like, I don't know who mentioned this. I I didn't make it up. It was like the big difference between a corporation and a country is that a corporation can fire its customers and it can fire its employees, but a country cannot fire citizens
1: yeah 100 percent. right like yeah. can singapore be like silicon valley you know like and we don't even want to look at all the people who get priced out of the valley that's not possible for a country people live here for a few years hopefully to make money not everybody does and then they go retire in like a low-cost area i have so many friends who've gone off because they just couldn't afford to live in the pace of life here that's just not possible with a whole country that lo- looks after people from cradle to grave you know, at some point we all stop work and not everybody is interested in entrepreneurship for many different reasons. I think one big difference is that you look after someone for their life cycle and you can't just look after the best. That's the mandate of a country.
0: Yeah, the mandate of a country is to take care of everybody, right? every citizen. And I think I also like the phrase you said, cradle to grave, because they are to serve out of the employee base, you know a certain type of employee, right? Whoever they're looking for, right? They screen for the top 5%, right? Or top 2% out of all the resumes they screen. And that's understood in the resume world. But what happens to the other 98%, right? The corporation doesn't care about the other 98% that you didn't hire. And then when you talk about customers, they only serve 1% to 5% market share for this situation. And they don't care about the 95% of the market share uh, and they don't care about the other verticals.
1: Companies are all about focus, right? Focus, 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 focus on which stakeholder your specific archetype does not care about everyone else. Like just focus this archetype of employees' archetype. And then governments, I know we have all these archetypes and like, guess what? We are responsible to all of them. That's our job.
0: It's interesting because you're one of the people who I really respect who has that nuanced view, right, I think, uh, of what government is good at, what technology is good at, and how do we kind of like work together. Do you feel like you you have to fight a lot about this? Do you feel like you have to end up defending the role of government in the private sector or the, I guess, court of public opinion?
1: It's interesting. I live in the US now. I lived in Singapore before, and I would answer differently for both countries, I think definitely in the U.S., there's more of a defensive role that the government plays. The entire U.S., the design of the U.S. was to minimize federal government power, except for very specific functions. That's not to say that the federal government actually didn't play a huge role in the Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley history is built upon like NASA and and defense. (laughs) So there's still that. But generally, the government is, people try to avoid it and think, how do I get around this? They hire lawyers to think. Okay, how do I get around this legislation? Rather than Singapore is the totally different paradigm. You know, the the government is thinking. All right, this is going to happen. Blockchain innovation, cryptocurrency, autonomous vehicles. Things that baffle other people's minds. Like we need to get ahead of the game. Like what can we do to help you? <laughs> you know, because we think. We really want to build strong industries, good jobs for people. So let's work with the best innovators and try and create this new ground. So I think that's something that the Singapore government is quite good at relatively. And that's also built on our history of being a small country, limited resources. Let's make ourselves the hub for all the good things. And the government knows we have levers for that. And so when you go to Singapore, no one is to justify the role of the government. It's like, oh, you want government approval? Of course you want government approval. <laughs> like, you want, not necessarily grants, but like you do want to be in a good relationship
0: with the government.
1: So I think it's a different paradigm altogether, 100%.
0: That, so it's interesting, right? Because one is, we're talking about government in the States and government in Singapore. And then the other layer they're talking about is like, there's a whole deep history in cultural ethos, right, that is just there. So an American saying the word government is thinking to himself a very different animal than a Singaporean saying of the word government. As kind of looking towards the future, and I think you said this phrase about it, is that in parallel, when someone in America thinks of Google, they are thinking of the same company as a Singaporean thinking about Google. And so there's this interesting dynamic where I feel like these big technology companies are the new wave of multinational corporations. And I always remember this phrase, and I had to study this, strangely enough, at UC Berkeley. When we talk about globalization, we're talking about the flattening of borders. But a lot of globalization is actually Americanization. So a lot of things we talk we talk about a globalized culture is pop music from Britney Spears. That's what we call global. Now it's something to be K-pop and a little bit more stuff. But I think there's this interesting dynamic where we use the word globalization where it means... Americanization, right? The view of government is very different in different countries, but the view of corporations are starting to become more similar and aligned across uh, different countries. How? What do you think are the responsibilities or stewardship that big tech companies, as they expand globally to countries like Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, you know, other countries? What would be your advice or recommendations on their stewardship?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm just thinking of this whole issue of YouTube, for example, right? And how even five years ago, they got away with the line, we are a platform, we're not responsible for content on our platform. And and then Mark Zuckerberg in 2016 was like, oh, we have nothing to do with what happened in the election. That was something they they really argued like full on back then. And that has changed tremendously. Where in the past elections and Would be the place for public opinion, main for like a lot of the public opinion about position, like policy positions or whatever, to come up. Like you see, like a total democratization of that through these platforms. What gets boosted? What gets censored? What gets given the light of day? Those are questions that the tech companies are making based on incentives, like how many clicks they're getting. We've seen like far too many instances. I think there was a case of like Facebook and the Rohingya. Things where you you can't move fast enough, right? They have operational constraints as well. And some of them are like censorship and taking down hate content. right? Like Meanwhile, your platform might be being used to propagate hate and murder. I think those are like the fundamental dilemmas. What are you really optimizing for? You're going to optimize for your business, but you have more influence over people's minds than any government in the world. So what is your responsibility now vis-a-vis the government, vis-a-vis governments? And that is a tremendous, tremendous question. I think that's the central dilemma for many of these media companies. I don't think a defensive stand is sufficient because lives are at stake, communities are at stake. But then what is the alternative? Governments tend to take a stand of like, all right, let's just fine you if you don't do this fast enough. But does finding them do anything about the fundamental incentive? Not really. It's better than not finding them. <laughs> but what is the alternative? What is the win win? What you could call co regulation, where both are involved in this in a very dynamic and fast iterative way. What would that look like? Because the way that it's structured now is Facebook is the policy, and then they hire billions of people to like take down content, right? And you just can't do it because well, how many how much content is put up every second? Some crazy number. It's just like operation not possible. How do you align the incentives of government and tech companies? That's really hard question because then it become then does do the Facebook employees agree with you know what they say a more authoritarian country would do in this case? you need a new paradigm, not just like, okay, let's just lock horns and I find you and you avoid me and you get around my rules and I find you again. Because if not, the central dilemma will never get solved. Wow,
0: well, we touched a lot there, right? Because we're not pretending that every society and every government is the same and neither are we pretending that Every platform has the same challenges. And I think we acknowledge the resource costs, some of the dilemmas across interfacing with multiple governments across the world, right? In a consistent way. I think for me, what it reminds me of is this feels like big tech companies are being very avoidant <laughs> you know, or passive-aggressive. I mean, on both sides, I guess. But how to handle this conversation, I think for me, as someone who is a tech operator, I see the business rationale of dodging the bullet (laughs) a bit. Yeah. Because if you dodge the topic, why bring it up? If you dodge the topic for 10 years, there's 10 years of profits where we don't have to step on anybody, right? But I think what you're reminding me is that as a human being, I would love for these platforms to say something like, we also believe in the health of society. We believe in being there. You know, we understand we have a role to provide jobs and profits. And we also care. I think everyone's just writing a lot of language right now to avoid saying that we care.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh I can see why it's a big minefield to be honest. Because and that is like the inherent issue of you know global tech companies. Are you really gonna do this for, with every single country and even countries you like philosophically disagree with on every level?
0: I mean, it's kind of like the same in like, you know, the old multinational corporations, right? Like the oil and gas companies, they had different standards for every country they worked in. Employees were generally aligned and in general, the public was not engaged to the same extent as they are today, I think, about where the oil and gas came from because it's an invisible thing. But with this like global content spread where everybody can see everything, I don't know, the great convergence and dissonance of billions of people around the world trying to get on the same channel. And we can't get the same channel within a country, and we can't get on the same channel across countries. One thing is interesting about you as a carrier is that you know, you've always been doing a lot of deep work with folks. You've often helped other people to be brave and step up to the challenges that they're facing in terms of personally as well as the team. I'm just curious, do you have any times where you had to choose to be brave and tackle something, a challenge of your own?
1: <laughs> I'll tell you the most honest answer I have, which is to actually take a break. That was one of the bravest things I did. When I burned out, I took a break. My mind was spinning. How can I do this? It's in the middle of a pandemic. I have so many people who I've been making sure they're fine and like running the team. How can I do this? Sometimes the bravest thing to do is to like step back from your productivity and, and value yourself. And I didn't realize it at the time, at the time I thought it was being selfish. At the time I thought it was not being a good leader. And after that, then I realized like that was the hardest thing to do for me. And I think you would empathize because it's easy to build your identity on how much you contribute and what you do for other people. You know, and, and maybe the underlying question is, what am I if I am not doing all these things? That is sometimes the scariest question for any of us. Some people are forced to deal with it, whether through health reasons or unfortunate circumstances. But I think most of us like grapple with that at the deeper level. Well, people say that I'm brave, of course, in whatever I've done, like, you know, leading this and that thing, building these things, this and that from scratch. But that was not as scary for me. None of that was as scary for me as taking a break when I really felt like I couldn't go on. That was earlier this year. So I'm back now, but that was scary.
0: Wow. Thanks for being so raw and honest about that. For those who are scared to take a break, how would you be present for them or how would you counsel them? Not about solving, you know, and not, 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 not on how to take a break or not on what's the best, most restorative way to take a break, but how to face that fear and come to a decision that this is worth potentially taking a break for. How would you counsel them to understand that? dynamic within themselves?
1: Well, I think I would ask them, like, what's your resistance and your anxiety and give a lot of space for them to be able to unpack that and talk about it. Because even though we know we should, there's a ton of voices in our own heads that say, no, 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 no. Like, I'm anxious about this and anxious about that. And starting to entangle, uh, disentangle that is important, right? Like, it, like any decision you make, I think importantly, you don't want to silence any there's many voices in here saying this and that, this and that. And like some people think in order to make a decision, I must silence all the other voices. That works sometimes. But on like things that you feel really high stakes to you, you know, it doesn't work. You don't silence it. You give voice to it and you let that voice run its course and make its arguments. And then that's how you like come to peace with any one decision. So I, I mean, my first thing would be to let them air it out. Like why, why not? And what do you fear? What are you anxious about? Let's start there and get empathy for that. Realize that these are legitimate things, not just you being lazy or weak or unreliable or, you know, all the things you accuse yourself of. But these are real things. We've all been through a crazy year, some worse than others, and whatever you're going through is real. So I I think that would be the first thing. And obviously all the other stuff comes later. But if you don't give that person any of that space, just get stuck up here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Thanks so much, Karen. Um, that was really good. Let me just wrapping things up here. i love to summarize, like, you know, paraphrase the top three themes that really came out of here. The first, of course, was thank you so much for sharing about how your passion for equity and people came about as a student, as someone who, as a high performer, as a professional, I think talking a lot about why you care and how it, it takes different forms for different folks. It has been really interesting to hear from that perspective. The second was really about, thank you so much for sharing about, I think, the interface between government and the private sector at one level, but also the interface between Singapore and Silicon Valley. And I think it was just interesting to go to that from a cultural perspective in terms of both an insider point of view as well as a and contrast perspective but also talking about the roles and responsibilities that we have in terms of bridging and communicating, but also being active participants in each other's spaces.
1: Let's get into a defensive war. Create that new value together. Where are those places?
0: Exactly. I think that's a lovely phrase, the, how do we create new value together? And this moves everything towards the future. That's a beautiful phrase. And I think you were hinting at it for the first two thirds and we've gone to it more than the last third of it. But what I really love was you know, the bravery to... You know, step back from productivity when you need it and valuing yourself. That was just a beautiful phrase. We talked about taking care of yourself, having the energy levels, taking care of yourself, valuing yourself. And I think that's a very, you know, you could say countercultural at macro level, but it's also very counterintuitive for a lot of folks uh, who are in the grind. Uh, And I think we talked a little bit around it, around the dissonance between the reality that people are projecting versus the reality of the world that we're in today, both at the individual level and the government level or site level. So we really thank you for encouraging everybody to be mindful about their responsibility and stewardship of themselves as well. So thank you so much, Karen.
1: Yeah, no, great talking to you. Always enjoy your thoughtful questions.
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.